My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to Episode 8 of Season 4. Today, we're going to look at the long list of excuses we give ourselves for playing it safe and staying in our comfort zone instead of pursuing our creative dreams and ambitions wholeheartedly. You and I could probably come up with a very long list of the excuses we've given ourselves over the years, but the good news is we don't have to, because Deborah Henry Pollard has done the job for us in her book, What's Your Excuse for Not Succeeding as an Artist? Deborah is a friend and colleague of mine. Like me, she is a coach for artists and creatives, and she's done a terrific job of nailing the various excuses in her book. So I'm really pleased she agreed to come on the show and share some of the excuses and obviously the solutions with us today. The book's title addresses artists specifically, but having read it and spoken to Deborah, I can assure you that the excuses are common to writers, singers, designers, musicians, and any other type of creative. So whatever your line of work, as I keep saying on the show, a lot of the factors for success as a creative are the human factors, the ones that we all have in common. And today's interview is a great illustration of that. Before we get to that conversation, I want to share with you an excuse I used to have around marketing my work, and one which I hear about from many creators. So I'd like you to tell you the story of how I got over it, and suggest how you too can get past it and make your own work much better known in the world. When I started out as a self-employed psychotherapist and coach back in the mid-90s, I was completely clueless about marketing. I thought it was the antithesis of my work as a helper. Something commercial and tacky and dirty. And I wanted nothing to do with it. So I suffered the fate of most young creatives. Frustration and confusion my clients' lives were being changed. So I knew I was doing good work. But there were never quite enough clients, so I was constantly anxious about money. I was also confused. If I was so good at my work, and my clients kept telling me I was, then why was I struggling? Eventually, I rolled up my sleeves and decided it was time to get my hands dirty. I was going to learn to promote my work and make my business a success. So the intention was there, but the knowledge was sadly lacking. You see, I didn't realise there was a difference between marketing and sales. These days, I know that making a sale is just one small step in a much larger process of developing products and services for customers and letting the world know about what you have to offer. And that larger process 
is called marketing. But in my mind back then, it was all the same thing. So I sat down with the telephone and made lots of cold calls to companies. I'm talking hundreds of calls. I hated it. It scared me to death. Some days I procrastinated nearly all day. A few days I actually did procrastinate all day. But I still made a lot of calls. And eventually I brought in a lot of business. So I succeeded at sales without doing any proper marketing. But it was painful. Like doing surgery without an anesthetic. You know, it worked, but nobody would choose to do it twice. There had to be a better way. I went back to college and did a master's in creative and media enterprises, a kind of MBA for creative entrepreneurs, where we studied theories of creativity, intellectual property law, and the creative economy, alongside more traditional business subjects like strategy and business models and marketing. Then one day, while researching for a marketing essay, I came across an ebook by somebody called Seth Godin that changed my life. Seth explained that if I started writing something called a blog, I could get my ideas out into the world and create new connections and opportunities for my business. This was back in 2005, when most people had never heard of blogging, let alone thought of using it as a marketing tool. That sounded more like it. Instead of cold calling people who had never heard of me, I could sit at home and write, and people would call me. It was great in theory, not so straightforward in practice. Because when I looked around at all the successful bloggers on the scene, I saw them being clever and insightful and wowing people with their ideas. So I tried to do that. But for some reason, my blog didn't take off the way theirs did. I even had one person who unsubscribed from my blog and left the comment, not as insightful as Seth Godin. Ouch. I floundered for a while and tried writing different types of blog posts, reporting industry news, going to events and writing about them, sharing links to other people's blogs. I also began sharing some of the actual ideas and the actual techniques that I was using to help my coaching clients. And after a while, I realized that these very practical posts were the most popular ones, the ones most likely to attract comments or links from other bloggers, and even business inquiries from creative studios and agencies. The penny finally dropped when I decided to stop thinking of my blog as a marketing channel or a platform for my ideas and start using it as a coaching tool. I shared as many practical tools and techniques as I could. I described the creative process of famous artists and creators and what we could all learn from their examples. I shared stories of my own struggles and successes and what I'd learned along the way. And my blog took off. Month by month, I received more visitors, subscribers, and new business inquiries than the month before. I released a free ebook, Time Management for Creative People, and it went viral. 
Writing that blog transformed my business and changed my life. It brought me readers, clients, customers, friends, and even business partners from the other side of the world. And there was a paradox at the heart of that blog's success. Because I only succeeded at marketing when I stopped thinking of it as marketing. I stopped seeing it as separate to my work as a coach. I just made my marketing an extension of my work into the wider world. A way of helping more people than I could reach in one-to-one coaching sessions or in group workshops. Everything I've created for my audience since then, not just the blog, but my books, my e-learning courses, the free 21st Century Creative Foundation course, and also this podcast, has been designed to extend my coaching out into the world and help you wherever you are in the world. So, when it comes to your marketing, stop thinking of it as marketing. Instead, make it an extension of your work into the world. Don't start by asking, how can I persuade someone to pay attention to me or to buy my stuff? Instead, ask, How can I share my work and give somebody a real experience of it? If you're an artist, put your art out there so we can see it. If you're a writer, publish at least some of your writing out there in public, on your website or your blog or on Medium, where we can all read it for free. If you're a musician, let us hear your music or see your show. If you're a coach or teacher, put your teachings out into the world, in writing, in videos, on a podcast, or whatever. If you're a speaker or a performer, get someone to film you in action and share the video, and so on. Now, not only is this the best way to reach people and give them a sense of the real value of your work, it also takes away the artificial division between your work and your marketing. So you don't have to divide up your time into doing your work, which you love, and selling your work, which you hate. There's no real distinction anymore. It's all just different aspects of your work. Some is for public consumption right now, online. Some is exclusively for your customers or your clients. And all of it is authentically you. If you're enjoying the 21st Century Creative, you may like to know there is more to this podcast than meets the ear. To help you succeed in your creative career or business, I've created an in-depth program, the 21st Century Creative Foundation Course. It covers the personal and professional skills you'll need to succeed as a creative professional in the 21st century. In other words, the stuff they probably didn't teach you at art school on your creative writing masters, or wherever else you learned your craft. Things like how to manage your time, how to communicate your ideas, how to handle difficult conversations, how to close a sale, how to deal with money, how to grow your network, and how to attract an audience for your work. Altogether, there are 26 lessons in the course, 
full of practical advice, plus a worksheet for each one to help you put the ideas into practice. And I'm giving you the entire course for free. In case you can't quite believe your ears, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course and see for yourself. When you get there, you can sign up with just an email address and you'll get your first lesson right away. By the way, the course has already been taken by over 11,000 students. And on the sign-up page, you'll see lots of testimonials from other creatives whose lives and careers have been changed by the course. You can join them right now for free by going to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. Deborah Henry Pollard is a creative coach based in London who describes her work as using my skills to support creative people who make us see the world in another way. Organisations she's worked with include English National Opera, Cameron Mackintosh, Siobhan Davis Dance, the Society of West End Theatre, Chester Literature Festival and Studio Voltaire. She's one of the creative business mentors recommended by the Design Trust in London, and you may recall that the director of the Design Trust, Patricia van den Acker, was a guest in season two of the 21st Century Creative. So a recommendation from Patricia is a very high endorsement in my book. Deborah is also the author of a great book called What's Your Excuse for Not Succeeding as an Artist? where she lays out and then expertly demolishes a long list of the excuses we give ourselves for shying away from doing what it takes to achieve our creative ambitions. I'm pleased to count Deborah as a colleague and friend of mine, someone who is utterly sincere in her desire to help her fellow creatives succeed, and who also practices what she preaches in pushing herself past her own fears and excuses. Listen to this conversation and you'll hear that sincerity in Deborah's voice, as well as her infectious enthusiasm for creativity and the difference we creatives can make in the world through our work. Deborah and I also have some fun towards the end of the interview where I pull out a series of excuses from the book and she knocks them down as fast as I can set them up. So, whether you're in the grip of a whole set of excuses or you just have one or two lingering at the back of your mind, this conversation with Deborah Henry Pollard will help you banish the excuses and get back to work. Deborah, how did you get started on the creative path? Well, it was when I was very young, I wanted to be an artist. That was my dream. Um, and mm -hmm. then I went to art college when I was 19 and studied graphic design for a year and discovered that I wanted to be an artist, but I didn't need to be an artist. It wasn't that thing that was really um, pulling inside of me that I had to use art to express myself. Yeah. Um, and so what then happened was a very long-term creative journey of 
trying photography. Um, writing has always been a constant, but always being curious about different art forms and trying them out. And it wasn't until about 15 years ago that I started dancing the Argentine tango and discovered my creative home. Oh. Yeah. Um, which was wonderful. But the thing that has been so marvelous is that everything that I tried out and experimented with, I still use somehow and has still been incredibly useful for opening my eyes, making me look at things a different way and making me appreciate how people work creatively. So it's been an utter joy um, finding my, my own creative path through lots of different avenues, if you like. Okay, Deborah, please expand my knowledge of dance. What is the Argentine tango, and, and is it different from the other kind of tango? Uh, it is, yes. There's ballroom tango and Argentine mm. tango. And ballroom tango is the um, the sanitized version, shall we say. It was the version that was created to be danced in polite company, um, whereas the Argentine tango is much more earthy, um, it comes from all kinds of influences from from Spain, from Havana, from uh, I mean, it's just amazing, absolutely amazing. And one of the things that was um, is wonderful about it is it's all improvised. So there are kind of figures that you can learn, but once you start dancing with someone, you never know what's going to happen. So it's all about really listening to that other person um, and listening with your whole body, listening with your instinct. And it's all about collaboration. And I love anything that's about collaboration. And it's sort of having a conversation. It's about um, whatever is happening in that moment. It, I mean, it's all about mindfulness as well. It's what's happening in that moment. Um, I used it um, in a little film I made, um, which is called This Is Not A Film About Tango, which is explaining coaching through tango. Because it's it's the same properties. It's that same engaging with someone, listening to someone actively, and going with whatever is happening. It's very much about being in the flow. And um, one of the things that I find so valuable about it when working with creatives is, for me, it's a little bit like, um, uh, it's a way of me saying, I understand the creative process, because although my creative process is very different, I know what it's like when you know all the moves, you know the music, you know your partner, and sometimes it just isn't going to happen. So it's um, it's it's like every creative process, you know, when you have that moment when sometimes it's just blissful and everything is working perfectly. And other times it's like, you know, Elvis has left the building. It just isn't going to happen. Okay. So again, you know, you talk about partnership and creativity here. So I think there's something here about creative collaboration, right? Because, mm. you know, and it's easy to think of creativity as the solitary act. Clearly that's not the case with this kind of dancing and a lot of types of creativity, right? Absolutely. Um, it's, uh, I, I love it when you see people coming together and bringing those different creative skills, even with things which you can think are solitary, like if you're painting or you're writing, you can go away and do a part of it on your own. But it's there's a great joy in bringing ideas together and getting different viewpoints. It's, it's one of the things I love doing is... Um, 
connecting people together and saying, you know, you've got this interest and you're an artist and this person has an interest who is a musician. What happens if you come together and finding those, um, it's those moments, it's those, those little moments and the points of similarity which create the connections and then suddenly there are much bigger possibilities than there were before and I think there are so many um, myths about the poor artist the poor writer sitting in their garrets and doing things on their own when actually um collaboration is something that seems to be built into a lot of DNA of creatives, of wanting to share. It's that curiosity. It's that um, that wanting to create something bigger than themselves. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, I'm a writer, but even then there's a kind of imagined collaboration because one's always thinking of the reader. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I've, I've worked with a lot of actors who always say that even when you're doing a one-person show, it's not a one-person show because obviously you have the stage management, but the important person in the cast is the audience. And audiences vary so much. You know, sometimes, and I've been in audiences where I've seen this, sometimes you've had a show that is just really struggling because it's not engaging the audience. And then you go on another night and the audience is just up for it. I'm really ready. And it's a completely different performance on stage, although you couldn't necessarily say what it is that's different. It's it's just about the energy. It's that sort of feeding off each other and the collaboration is it's wonderful it happens in music you know it's it's fine crazy music but if no one is going to listen to it and bring their stories to it as well um with artists you know you look at a painting and you as a viewer is are bringing your background your experiences to that piece of work and you can see it in a completely different way to how the artist intended and that can be quite thrilling you know when you get into conversation with an artist you say wow i didn't even see that that was there it opens up more possibilities for them as well so you you've tried various creative fields and learned something from each of them and you know argentine tango is clearly close to your heart. Mm. Where does coaching enter the story for you? Well, I would have said that it entered about 11 years ago. Um, when I went to a career coach, I was working um, as a fundraiser. Uh, and I had been doing that for some time, working for charities. And it's obviously it's an incredibly worthwhile job to do. But I never wanted to do it. I sort of fell into it. Um, and... I was at that point where I was completely stuck and I was running around in circles in my head thinking, oh, I've, for my next job, it's just going to be the next level up in fundraising. And I thought, do I want to be doing a job that I don't like doing at a higher level where I have more pressure, etc.? And it was somebody else who said, have you thought of going to a career coach? And I said, well, no, not really. I'm intelligent enough to work this out for myself. Uh -huh. um, and... Then I thought, well, I'm spending so much time just getting depressed and frustrated that I went to a fabulous coach called Cherry Douglas, who, alas, is no longer with us. And within about three sessions with her, I'd gone from thinking I feel really trapped to, my goodness, anything is possible. I have all these transferable skills. I have all this possibility. I have all these ideas. 
And it was through talking with her about what I'd done in the past and how I worked that she pointed out that I had always worked in a coaching way so that when I was working with people um, who wanted projects to be funded, I would be always asking questions. The obvious logistical ones, you know, how much money do you want? What's the project for? How will it work? But it was always also what are the benefits? Who is going to... um, who is going to benefit from this? How are they going to benefit? And it was always working like that. And so sometimes projects I was working with, as I was talking to the person who was coming up with them, these projects would be getting bigger because they'd be saying, oh, but if we did that, that could happen. Oh, and we could add in that. Or sometimes it would be, hmm, this isn't quite going to work. I think I'm going to have to go away and think about this a bit more. And when Cherry put that idea in my head, I thought, well, yes, of course you ask people questions. Of course, even when I worked with staff, was managing staff, it was never, this is how you do things. It was, this is the, the result we want to get. How can we get it? What can you bring to the party? What are your skills? What are your insights? And when I was thinking about this, I thought, that would be such a wonderful thing to do, to do what Cherry was doing, because I knew the benefits it had had for me completely changed my life I thought I would love to be able to do that even if only in a small way for other people and that's when I decided to um, hand in my notice on my job and I thought that I would find a, a company that would take me on to to coach and I had never wanted to be self-employed Um, And in fact, when Cherry had said to me, have you ever thought of being self-employed? I just said, no, very firmly. (laughs) And we never discussed it again. (laughs) And the thing that was amazing, I thought, if I leave my job and spend six months networking, connecting with people, I will find somebody who will give me a job doing this. And what happened was the day I left my job, I went out with my tango dancing colleagues and was very hyper and was going, oh, my God, I've handed in my notice. I will never eat again um, because uh-huh. I'm not employed. And they said, what do you want to do? And I explained. And I got four clients on the first night. Oh, wow. Because they said, well, if you did that <laughs> freelance, I would come to you. And I was, what? You've got to be joking. You know, this is absurd. And so I thought, well, okay, I will, I will do this. And I took them on. And after about another six months, I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I suppose I ought to put up a website or something. So it was always still thinking about, I will get somebody else to do this. And that was 10 and a half years ago. And I haven't looked back. And it's been the most wonderful experience. um, And I love every moment of it. And I do truly feel that I have found my vocation. So between the coaching and the the tangos it's just like perfection really gosh isn't that amazing and it shows the difference that it makes when you show up and you say what you're looking for into the world oh god absolutely i had come back oh it's it's been it's been astounding because i'd always sort of thought that because i'd read a lot of self-help books you know and it says you have to shop but i was always doing it a bit half-heartedly but when i put myself out there it was like The universe is waiting for you, you know, and it's put something out there. And it might, I mean, 
my my results were very immediate but even throughout these 10 years sometimes things take a little bit longer to show up but because you've put yourself out there the seeds are being planted there's somebody out there listening it's going to reach the right person at the right time and maybe it was no accident that your results were immediate i mean you were there in the tango zone weren't you Absolutely. And it was also about building trust, you know, because when you dance with someone, you build up a huge level of trust. I, I was just thinking what's what's going through my mind is there are so many people I've danced with who I only know their names. I don't know anything about what they do in the rest of their lives or what their families are like. But because you dance together, you build up this amazing bond of trust, which of course is the heart of a coaching relationship. So, it's also about your the networks of where you're going to find your clients aren't necessarily the ones that you think they are. It's a great business lesson. <laughs> yeah, that's really surprising, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, because I was thinking of it in terms of you being plugged into your creative energy. Yes, absolutely. I Because I was... Um, yeah, because we had been dancing. I was just recreating the, the, the moment in my head. We we had been dancing. We went to a group to see a, uh, a group called the Gotam Project. It was at the Roundhouse. We had been dancing. So I was completely in that tango vibe, that creative vibe. And so although I was going, oh, I haven't got a job, it was I wasn't kind of really worried about it. It was just putting it out there as, so this has happened yeah. to me today. But it was that creativity and feeling feeling safe in that creative environment i think you know to my description of this is it's like it's the bigger you yes and yeah if you show up as the bigger you then that person can usually achieve any ambition she sets herself and i always say to clients if you are practicing your own art even if it's completely uncommercial or not obviously related to your business like my poetry i know if i'm writing poetry then i'm a much better coach Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll take this even further as well, because I um, I do public speaking and I run workshops. And I will be completely honest, it is not my natural home. Once I get started, I quite enjoy it, but I get terrific nerves beforehand. And one of the things that I do is whenever I go to a venue, I have my, you know, I have my laptop if I need to, I have my, you know, all my books, you know, all kind of stuff you take along and I always take my tango shoes with me and if I'm feeling particularly really? nervous I will wear my tango shoes oh wow because it kind of makes me assume the position um yeah. and I mean the rest of the you know the audience can't tell um mm. and it's that thing of you know, I'm not saying I'm the greatest tango dancer in the world I'm not saying I'm the greatest coach in the world but they're the two places where I feel most in flow and it's a trick that I I say to other people if you're going into a, an atmosphere or a place where you know maybe you're going to pitch or maybe it's you know it's your open studios and you're feeling really nervous have something with you that really um that reminds you of where you are, as you say, the bigger you, the, the best of you. So it could be, I know somebody who carries, an artist who carries a putty rubber in his pocket. And if he's feeling nervous, <laughs> he just puts his hand in his pocket. Brilliant. And, and feels that, and just, no, that's who I'm at my best. That's who I'm going to be now. It's, um, 
it sounds kind of a silly thing to do, but it makes so much difference because you just go, no, this is who I am really. This is who I am, as you say, the bigger you. And I can do anything when I'm in tango mode. Right. And so back when I was doing hypnotherapy, we would have called that an anchor. You know, it of course, triggers the yes. state yeah. of mind, whether it's the putty rubber or the, the shoes or or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a lovely technique to use to to keep you plugged in. Yes. So, okay, you almost, it sounds like you, start, you started your private coaching practice almost by accident. Yes. <laughs> what? How did you end up specializing in working with artists and creatives? Was this a deliberate decision or was it something else that just emerged? It was a very deliberate decision. Um, I mean, when I started, my first four clients were very mixed. But then I, um, I went and did a training course. Um, because I'm a little bit like the scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz. I need to have a piece of paper that says I have a brain, that I'm actually mm -hmm. qualified to do this. Right. And it was a brilliant course. And one of the things they were talking about then was picking a niche and about from a marketing point of view, et cetera. It was very sensible. And some people would, were um, picking areas such as, you know, maybe career coaching or uh, bereavement or divorce, things like that. And I thought, you know what, I really want to work in the creative fields because I always feel that anything that I have ever learned of any value has come from consuming the arts in some ways. When I was a child, I would, I was always encouraged to read books, uh, to listen to plays on the radio, uh, to watch films, to listen to music. And... I just found it opened so many worlds for me. And it was also about the whole thing of seeing the world through someone else's eyes and thinking, oh, well, that's... I, I remember seeing a Van Gogh painting when I was about four and of it having an almost an almost physical reaction to it because I just thought it was just so amazing. And I was thinking, but that doesn't look like how I would draw a cafe it should mm -hmm. have nice lines and it should be correct. Yeah. And, and and this was just, well, you know, you know what Van Gogh is like. It was just color and energy. And it made mm. me think, oh, that's really fascinating. So he saw the world like that. And then you look at something else that's almost like an architectural drawing and you go, oh, and that's another way of looking at the world. And it's just, it made me so curious to find out more. And... One of the things that I love so much about working with creative people is that it's about that openness of thinking and creativity, the curiosity of creative, creative thinking that I find just amazing. And after I've, I've been in a coaching session, I don't know whether you find this, Mark, but I find that I'm usually as um, kind of excited as the coachee, I come away thinking, gosh, anything is possible because I've almost, it sounds awful, it's like feeding off their energy of, of seeing them as they're getting their breakthroughs and their ideas. And, and I sort of go, oh, this is amazing. There's, there's this whole new thing about to be brought into creation um, by this wonderful person who's had this idea, whether it's musical, whether it's visual. And it's about... You know, I'm talking about this, uh, I wanted to be an artist. It's also a little bit like being an artist by proxy in a way, you know, by mm -hmm. um, 
a lot of the jobs I've had in my life have been very uh, they've been around marketing or admin or project management, but a lot of them have been in creative environments, working in theatres, uh, working for English National Opera. Um, so it's been supporting creative people in some way. And for me, I think it's a lot about creativity has given me so much and has given me the... When I was young, I had very few female role models outside of being a wife and a mother and being wife and mother is brilliant and I knew it wasn't me and I wanted to see other paths and so reading books seeing films gave me openings to other lives that were available other possibilities and I want to give that back to people in some way and it's that thing of realizing that I don't need to be creating the work but it's being able to facilitate that work to support the makers. And I think it's just, um, I just, creative people are just the most exciting people to work with, I think. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I'm, I'm down with that idea. Yeah, I, I can totally relate because when you're with somebody who's working at a high level and, you know, picking up on the point about energy, I think a great coaching conversation generates energy oh yes yeah and to it's a real privilege to be a part of you know a small part of someone's creative process who's out there doing things i mean you know nearly all my clients can do things i can't do like yes. make feature films or tv or dance or paint or play music or whatever and it's a real a it's a lot of fun yes sometimes and b it's a privilege to just be a little part of that process and see how a bit of questioning and reflection and knocking things back and forth can really open it up and that person goes away with probably even more energy than us oh absolutely and it's interesting you say about they can do things that you can't because I don't know about you, but I find that really useful sometimes because you can step in and say, so why do you do it like that? Yeah. Or yeah, explain you can, you can how that works. Exactly. Please. The dumb questions, the best ones, where it, it makes people step back and go, oh, I hadn't really thought about that. I just always done it like that. Um, and also from a business point of view, um, I've said that, you know, public speaking isn't my natural home. Neither is networking, really. I find that quite, I'm quite introverted. I, I need to gather up my energy before I go into these sorts of environments. And of course, the great thing about working with creatives is that I get to network not at sort of the boring networking meetings, but going to private views or yeah. going to theater, going to going to do things that I love doing anyway. And so it means that I'm walking into a very enjoyable atmosphere for me, somewhere that feels like home. Oh, and along the way, I might get to meet some people as well. So it's sort of, it's also quite a, um, it's a way for me to be able to do all the business stuff whilst at the same time be nurturing myself and taking care of myself and, and not putting myself in an atmosphere which is, uh, too stressful. Yeah, well, you know, it's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it, huh? Exactly, yes. <laughs> I have to go to the theatre. I have to go to private views. What a right. bore. <laughs> and, and it's part of your job. It's part of my job. <laughs> 
Okay, so you recently published your first book. What's your excuse for not succeeding as an artist? How did you end up writing a book about excuses? It was very strange because um, the I know the publisher. It's a very small independent publishing group called What's Your Excuse that mm-hmm. was started by a coach who wrote two books herself. She is a health and fitness coach. So one was about... Um, eating healthily, and one was about getting fit. And as she was writing these books based on excuses that her clients came up with, um, she thought, this is quite a good format. And she started inviting other coaches to write on other subjects. And and they're around money and um, productivity and um, confidence, all kinds of things. And they're all really good books. And I would go along to the launches to support her. Mm -hmm. Never occurred to me to write a book. Although I think you and I, at one point, we were having a conversation and you said to me, you should write a book. And I kind of went, no, I'm not going to write a book. And um, because I thought, what am I going to write about? So it was sort of in the background but it was one of these launches that she said have you thought of writing one of these books and it was my first reaction was I came up with a lot of excuses not to write it (laughs) (laughs) I don't have the time I couldn't possibly write that much people like me don't write books I'm actually a coach I'm not a writer um Mm. yeah all that stuff it wouldn't be good enough imposter syndrome the whole lot so I thought this is interesting maybe I should write this down and I started writing down some of the excuses I was coming up with and there was a part of me that felt that this had sort of fallen into my lap but then I realized that I'd been writing blogs for about seven or eight years. And Joanne, my publisher, had been looking at those and thinking, well, she can write. And what I did, I'm not one of these people that likes a deadline. I don't like pressure. I don't thrive under that sort of, I've got to write X amount of words every day. So what I did was I said to Joanne, I'll think about it. And I went away and I wrote the first draft before I'd agreed to write it because I needed to know for myself that I could come up with the word count, that I actually had enough to say. And I started by pulling a lot of my blog material together and I sent her a first draft and I said, this is absolutely first draft. I know this needs a lot of work, but do you think that there is enough basic material here to work with? And she said, yeah, I think so. So that was the point at which I signed the contract because I wanted the process to be fun. I didn't want it to be a burden. Yeah. Um, And then we spent, I can't remember how long it was in the editing process. And we talked about collaboration and working with Joanne was absolutely wonderful. It was, I've, I've heard some stories about working with editors where people haven't been entirely happy, but mine was a joy from beginning to end. We we discovered very early on that we both share a very great love of Laurel and Hardy, which is a great place to start any relationship, I think. Of course. <laughs> and the masters. Absolutely. And it was wonderful because she was very good at um, pulling me back from my 
purple passages occasionally. I love the English language and I, I would refine these beautiful phrases and she would say, yeah, really nice, totally unclear, don't know what you're talking about. And I think one of the things that I've loved most is in terms of the reactions of people who've read it is that people who know me personally have said that it sounds like I'm just talking to them. It's kept my tone of voice. And I think oh, that, great. Yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah. where Joanne has been absolutely spot on. She was brilliant. I cannot thank her enough in this process. It was wonderful. And it was, you know, I had lots of moments when I thought, this is, this is just going to bomb. People are just going to hate it. Who do I think I am to write this? And it was brilliant because every time this came up, I thought, right, that's another excuse. But it's oh yeah, that's delightful, isn't it? It is. So I was generating <laughs> it kind of auto generates its own material as you go along. It was it was brilliant, and it was so great. And of course, I could use so many excuses that my clients come to me with mm. that throw up things from them. And one of the things that I I think is important about this book and and about this series of books is that when you open them and you look down the contents list, you immediately see all the excuses written down. And one of the things I think that does is, well, first of all, you go through and you tick off the ones that you've got. But the fact that it's in the book, it it kind of goes back to remind me of when I was reading books when I was young, where you find someone who is describing an experience that you've had. And you thought, I thought I was the only one who thought that. Yeah. yeah. And so when you're going down the, the list and you're saying, oh, yeah, uh, imposter syndrome, I don't have the confidence, I don't have the motivation, somebody else must have had that as well. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in the book. Yeah. And it suddenly makes you feel, oh, perhaps I'm not such a bad person. Perhaps I am actually getting this right. So a couple of things. First of all, I think this is a great book because to open it and look through the table of contents, which is basically all the excuses laid out. And I think my experience was just you, you, you flick through it until I get to the point where I go, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I need to read that one. Yes. <laughs> and also, you know, the, the normalization of the excuses, I think, is great. I say to clients a lot, well, you do realize I've heard this hundreds or thousands of times yes. from others. Yeah. It's, it's just an occupational hazard if you're an artist or a writer or, or whatever it is that you do. And, you know, I sometimes say, I wish I could get you all in a room and then you could all <laughs> share the experience because then you'll see how normal it is. But a book is another lovely way to do that because by definition, it's not getting in the book if, if you haven't heard it a certain number of times. Exactly. Exactly. And I think the uh, the thing that also I, I think is good about it, the book is, it, as you say, the normalizing, I think that's such a good way of putting it, is because we can see excuses as being bad. You know, and we always tend when we talk about yeah. exercises, it's always about, oh, you know, um, we can't do this, we can't do that, because I've got this excuse, so therefore I'm a bad person. But I think I see exercise, uh, excuses as things which are there to protect us, you know, from danger, from looking foolish, from, you know, embarrassing ourselves. And they can just be a bit overprotective sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the keys about this is it's not about judging our excuses, but trying to sort of take the emotion away from it. 
Um, because you can get into the cycle of, oh, I've got this excuse, therefore I'm a bad person and I feel guilty about that. And so it just goes round and round on this ongoing loop in your head. And I think it's about acknowledging the excuses. Yes, I have this excuse. So what's behind it? What is there simple that I can do? Um, and then move on. And sometimes it's not even about completely banishing you know, the fear or the, the, the whatever the excuse is. It's just going, okay, I've got this. It, it's like that wonderful book, is it Susan Jeffers? Feel the fear and do it anyway. Mm-hmm. It's about you can still have that excuse sitting there, but you go, okay, it's there, it's fine, and I'm going to just, instead of it being a barrier, it's a hurdle you can get over or you can sneak round. It doesn't need to stop you. It's also an opportunity of seeing what's important because I think if you start... I thought about this with when I was writing the book, so many excuses were coming up. And every time I knocked one down, another one came up. And I thought, you know what? <laughs> if this wasn't important, this wouldn't be happening. I would just say, no, I'm not going to do it because I don't have the time. End of story. But when more kept coming up and more kept coming up, I thought, no, this is obviously something I need to be doing. This is obviously important in some way. And it's also something that is pulling me forward to develop me. So I think I better listen to what's going on here. Absolutely. Because I love the way you're reframing excuses and saying, look, it's a good sign if they're popping up because it shows you're, you, you know, you're reaching the edge of your comfort zone. And the fact that you had so many excuses coming up <laughs> For you, I think shows you were really at leaning into your edge. And that's probably what made it a book worth reading. Oh, thank you, Mark. I do value that. Um, I really do value that. You know how much I admire your books. So I, I do thank you. Um, I think also what happened as I was starting to tell people, I mean, I didn't tell people for a while I was doing it. I think I'd been, I think I'd written my first draft before I said to people, I've been approached to write a book. Um, and then I couldn't stop talking about it. But the thing that kept coming up for me was people were saying, oh, this will be so valuable, so useful. And I realized that as I was writing it, it was almost going back to what I was talking to earlier about creators it was my love letter to creative people and Mm. what I wanted it to be was um I don't know some people may think this sounds a bit wet or a bit mawkish but at my launch uh I said I wanted it to be a hug on a shelf I wanted it (laughs) I wanted it to be there so that you know, when you're sitting here thinking, oh, you know, I'm not doing this because, or I can't do this, or I'm not good enough, you could reach for this book and you could just flick through it and you could know that there was somebody else, you know, aside from your mum, aside from your dog, who thinks that you're wonderful and who thinks that it's worth you carrying on. And so for me, it was a way of doing some very light touch coaching. There's lots of very simple kind of exercises. There's lots of reframing what ex, uh, what excuses are just to support you and go, no, it's all right. Don't worry. This is just a blip. Get on to the next thing. Try this. Have fun with this. But it's all right. It's going to be fine. And I think that's another thing that that really makes it as a book. And also this relates to your choice of working with creatives as a niche is just the fact that you really care about these people. You really love them. And that shines through on every page. Oh, thank you. 
Thank you. Yes, I, I consider creative people as my extended family, definitely. Um, <laughs> I think it's because I'm, I am quite, you know, I, I do kind of wear my heart on my sleeve. And I have been known, um, I, I, I went to, there's a Dior exhibition at the moment at the VNA, which is just astounding. And uh, the first time I went to it, I cried almost all the way round. I, I cried when I went to the Van Gogh Museum, you know, and it's, it's, I love that feeling of being moved by creativity, of seeing, because creativity is so personal. Um, yeah. which is, I mean, you know, this is a poet, you know, I, I mean, I can't imagine what it must be like for you when you actually put a poem out there for someone to read. It's quite soul bearing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The, the pulse quickens. Yes. <laughs> and it's that thing of, um, it's going back to this whole thing of trust again in, in the tango and in the coaching. It's about, somebody putting themselves out there and trusting that there will be someone who will respond and who will connect. And I find that the bravery in that from creative people is um, incredibly admirable. And also it's such an honor to be on the receiving end of that, of being invited to participate with this, of the, you know, being invited to participate in the process as well. Well, let's have a bit of participation now, Deborah. I'd like to rack up some excuses and then you thwack them out of the park. <laughs> if I can. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to pick some that, that jumped out at me when I was looking through the table of contents. So let's see, where can we start? I don't have the confidence. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, none of none of us on this call, nobody listening to this ever has this one. <laughs> but we all do. It's one of those things where we tell ourselves that we can't do something. Um, or we think about public speaking, for instance. Uh, I use that one a lot. I've done a lot of public speaking things which have worked. The one I can remember in the greatest detail is the one that didn't, where the tumbleweed was mm -hmm. rolling across the room. And we do <laughs> that so often. And one of the things I encourage clients to do, and this is incredibly simple thing, is to create a confidence list of 10 things that you have done that you felt really proud of and confident of. Um, so it could be, in my case, it can be the tango. Um, but it can be things that are about, um, you know, maybe you ran a marathon. Maybe you're a really great cook. Maybe it was when you got that particular piece of work in an exhibition. Maybe it was when you got a really good testimonial. And you can remember the feelings of, of that moment, of how that really felt for you. And you can write this list down and you can put them on your phone. You can put them at the back of a sketchbook or a back of a notebook. And when you're thinking, oh, you know, I really don't know if I can do this. Hang on a second. I did these things and I did them really well. And it's, it's again, it's pulling out the bigger self that you were talking about earlier that we can forget about. But it's having an instant list that you can just refer to and go, that's who I am at my best. And I'm just going to step into that now. And I can do this. Next one. I'll never be as good as dot, dot, dot. <laughs> yes, we all have that. Um, 
I'll never be as good as Mark McGuinness. That was one, I will be honest, went through my mind when I was writing this book. (laughs) No, it's true. It's true. But why would you want to be like someone else? This is something I ask. Absolutely use other people for inspiration. Learn from them. Ask for them. I'm a great believer in picking other people's brains for insight and feedback. But the key to creativity is surely your authenticity. And it's recognizing the fact that you bring something very, very special and very unique to the party. And it's, you know, very frustrating when you see somebody who can do something brilliantly, but you have to remember they didn't start off like that. You know, nobody came hurtling out of the womb with a 2B pencil saying, I know how to draw perspective. People practiced. And it's about practicing forgetting the the finished work almost of your role model and remembering the behind the scenes practice and their commitment to turn up and do the work and it's it's doing that it's doing the practice and it's remembering that whatever you produce is yours i'm just remembering something that um I, I I told you I studied did a year of art and my one of my art teachers actually turned up at my book launch. She's a fantastic watercolorist, and I used to love the idea of being a watercolorist and I couldn't do it. I thought, and when I was talking to her at my launch, I said I always wished that I could have been um, a better watercolorist, and she said the problem is with you that you think that you can't do watercolors because you can't produce them like other people, but you actually produce really good watercolors of your own. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, oh, right, okay. Because I was trying so hard to be like yeah. you know, other people. And that's what we try so often to do. And it's great to try other people's styles on and to try other people's techniques. It's a fantastic learning process. But then if you produce something that doesn't look or sound like somebody else's work, that's actually the advantage. That is the thing that makes you different. It's the thing that makes you unique. And it's the thing that people will respond to. Next excuse. Mm-hmm. It's self-indulgent. Oh, yes. Get a proper job is also the other one. I think, (laughs) you know, get a proper job. And because of this, people perhaps don't market themselves. They're uh, reluctant to charge the right prices for their work. Some can even feel guilty when they sell work, when things are going well for them. And something I hear a lot, which is you said earlier about bugbears, is about um, people who I say to them, so have you sold work? Yes, but only to friends. Your friends don't have to buy your work. They really don't have to buy your work. They buy it because they want it. And I always say to artists, if I say to you, have you sold work? Just say yes. Don't add the other bit. But it's about... um, I mean, hopefully when you've heard me talk about what creativity means to me, it's about what you are generating for other people. It's things like, um, okay, here's a silly example. If you think about footwear, 
all we actually need in footwear is something that's going to keep our feet warm and dry. So we could all just walk around in one pair of Wellington boots. That's all we need for practical reasons. But we want all those intangible benefits that mm. shoes give us, you know, how they feel, what it, what it says about us, what, it, uh, what other people will think about us through wearing these really funky shoes and things like that, how we express our personalities. And so we need shoe designers. We need people to create things to enhance our environments. We need people to create things that will make us happy, you know, that will give us enjoyment. Um, okay, this is something silly. Before I came on the line with you, I put on a piece of music and I danced around my sitting room to get some energy up and to get me kind of, yay, you know, I'm ready to, to be out there and to talk. And, you know, I could have danced in silence, I guess. But having that piece of music, having that inspiration from somebody else, it just really helped to get me, you know, in the zone, as they say, you know. So we all need something. Even people who say, oh, well, I don't go to art galleries. I don't go to museums. I don't go to opera houses. They all consume creativity every day, everything around us. And so we need people who are original thinkers, who can see things in a different way to inspire us. So it's not self-indulgent. It's one of the most giving things the most contributing professions that you can be involved in, I think. We need you. We should have a poster. Was it your your country needs you? Your country needs you, yes. <laughs> and we need you for well-being. You know, we need you for um, just making us feel better about ourselves. We need you to educate us. You know, the films that you make... Um, giving us insights into other people's lives, other worlds, other thinking. I mean, it really is the most, I'm, well, I'm just so sold on people who are creative. Creative. It's not self-indulgent in the slightest. So it's um, when you're creating a piece of work, if you have that feeling coming up, just think about the effect that your work is going to have on someone else and the benefit, the joy it's going to give to someone else. Thank you, Deborah. I think that's a really nice place to land. So maybe now would be a good time for you to set our listener your creative challenge. And for anybody who's new to the show, this is the part of the interview where I ask my guest to set you, the listener, a challenge that will stretch you creatively and probably personally as well. And it's something that you can do or at least get started on within seven days of listening to this conversation. So Deb, what's your creative challenge? Well, to give you a little bit of preamble, when I was writing the book, um, a lot of people uh, said, because it's called Succeeding as an Artist, they asked me what I meant by succeeding. And they expected me to say, well, obviously, million-dollar incomes, being game changers or thought leaders, um, being a household name, all those kinds of things, which is great if that's what you want to become, want to be. But we all have our different aspirations and priorities for our lives. Some it's about the tangible things, recognition of others. For others, it's about the self-development, self-expression, a million other things. And also, although I am a very great believer in setting a long, long-term vision for yourself and goals for yourself, success 
can often feel like it's something that you're chasing, that you will get one day. But it can be something which is kind of your daily motivation, you know, the successes you have every day. To give you an example, my company is called Catching Fireworks. I love kind of fireworks imagery. And for me, success, and you will understand this, Mark, it's that moment when you're working with a client, when you see that something has just shifted. Mm -hmm. It could be, you know, something in the body language, a light in the eye, but and I call it sort of the light, the blue touch paper moment. It's that moment when you know something isn't going to be the same for them again. Mm. That's my, and I ride on the back of that success. Now, it doesn't happen every single session, but it happens a lot. So I ride on the back of those, well, they're not small successes for the people concerned, but those successes. And that keeps me going for my longer term vision, which is I want to still be doing what I'm doing when I'm 80, because I still want to be working with people who are coming up and helping them to get their creativity in the world. So what I would like the challenge to be is to take some time out and to think about what success means to you. And this is not the oughts and the shoulds or the other people's expectations, but what it really looks like for you. And if you can, maybe distill it into one idea or an image or a phrase like my light the blue touch paper that you can use as a reminder and an aid to support you for when all those excuses start popping up. So it's kind of like, well, if I want to create this success, I've got to deal with this excuse. I've just got to handle this and move on. So is this a bit like the, the equivalent of your tango shoes or the artist's putty rubber? Absolutely, yes. It's what's that thing that is, that's my, that's success to me. And it can be something the day to day and it can be something that pulls you forward. And also something that you can maybe either touch or at least call to mind. Maybe a phrase like like the blue touch paper. Yeah, a phrase. It can be a little sketch. It can be a little tangible thing. Whatever works for you in your in – your, because um, I know some people are visual, some people are all, et cetera. So pick what works for you. Great. Thank you, Deborah. That's a lovely challenge. And I think it's one that will be, like, you know, instantly practically useful Yes. Uh, to people on a, on a daily basis that – makes success a little closer than than sometimes it seems. So, Deborah, as always, it's been a real joy and a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm really delighted that this time we could share the conversation so other people <laughs> can eavesdrop. We always have great conversations. So if somebody would like to know more about excuses, obviously they should go to their nearest bookshop and get hold of what's your excuse for not succeeding as an artist. Where else can people go to learn more from you and, and maybe get some help one-on-one? Uh, well, I have a website, which is www.catchingfireworks.co.uk. And that gives you all the information about me. And it also gives you lots of links because I am all over social media. So do uh, follow me and um, befriend me and I will be very happy to um have conversations with people there. But you can find everything there about my coaching practices, about the workshops, and also about the book. 
And you can also see my tango video there as well. Oh, well, can, can we embed the tango video in the show notes? Oh, absolutely. Please feel free. Okay, brilliant. Okay, this is going to be fun. Okay, so folks, as, as usual, the all the links that Deborah's just talked about and obviously the link to the book and the tango video will be in the show notes that you can find at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash Deborah. And thank you, Deborah. It's been, uh, like I say, it's been another enlightening and enjoyable conversation. And it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thank you, Mark. It's been a real honor. And I must say, I listen to this podcast a lot and I absolutely love it. So thank you for inviting me to be part of it. Great. Thank you. You have been listening to the 21st Century Creative. Hosted by Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show with more information about my guest and links to the sites we mentioned, as well as all the backlist episodes of the podcast at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, I do hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful if you could take a couple of seconds to just go to the iTunes podcast app and give the show a rating. If you'd like to have the 21st Century Creative Foundation course delivered to you for free, giving you 26 lessons of advice and worksheets on carving out an original creative career, you can sign up for the course at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative and you're curious about getting my help as a private coaching client, then the first step is to go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching questions and answer the questions on that page. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.